Welcome to All In with Aqueous. This is going to be a podcast that we talk about everything we can come up with with the most important band in the universe, Aqueous. My name is Mike Memo Minio, and I'll be the host as we do this uh, every time we can get the band to come and help us out. We're going to be talking to all the different band members in Aqueous. We would like to talk to the extraordinarily, incredibly talented sound engineer in Ryan Bress. And we'd like to talk to different fans here in the Aqueous community as well. We plan on maybe even doing some guitar tutorials and maybe some YouTube clips where Mike or Dave or Evan kind of help you guys through learning some of the Aqueous material in the future. And we're open to all kinds of ideas. So today we're going to sit down and talk with Mike Ganser, the lead guitarist and one of the founding members of Aqueous. And we're going to talk about anything we can come up with and hopefully we'll have a good time today. So let's get started with our uh, our guest today is Mike Ganser. And Mike, welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So we got a lot of questions and a lot to talk about here with Mike today. Uh, Aqueous has been absolutely killing it. A lot of exciting things on the horizon and a lot of uh, incredible things have happened in the last couple of weeks. So it's a great time to get Mike here to talk to everybody. And we're going to start right from the beginning with Mike. So Mike, um, you know, the first question I want to ask you is... You know, when you picked up a guitar, you know, what were some of your earliest influences and how did everything come about? Yeah, so when I was growing up, my dad, my dad is a musician, was a musician, and uh, he was primarily a keyboard player, but he also was very interested in the guitar and dabbled on the guitar. And there was always a guitar, like, sitting around at our house that I was pretty enamored with, but I just, uh, you know, when I was younger, my hands were too small and it just didn't, you know, <laughs> I, I, I feel like my interests were pretty preoccupied being a kid, you know, you're into riding your bike and skateboarding and all that fun stuff but I feel like by the time I was around 11 or 12 I started being pretty interested in music and uh, when my dad would go to work I would like secretly take the guitar out you know and because I for some reason thought I'd be in trouble for that sure. and and every like literally every day I would take it out and like place it on my lap because I didn't know how to do it you know and I would just like strum up and down the strings with a penny you know I didn't even use a pick or no like I didn't know anything about it you know how old do you think you were probably 11 11 i think i was 11 when i was doing that weird weird thing yeah and then i eventually turned it the right way and 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 i had the this crazy epiphany when i realized that if you press down on the frets i didn't even know what that was it just like the bar is what i thought it was you know that it would make a different note and so all of a sudden i'd be just kind of going up and down every single fret what you know chromatically is the musical term for that but i didn't know what i was doing i was just kind of experimenting and my mom told my dad that I was doing that because she thought it was cool and and I thought I was going to be in trouble and my dad was super psyched he was like (laughs) he's like yes like this I'm really glad that you're into you know getting into music and this and that and then for that next like the next birthday I had after that kind of time you know that time where I was doing that thing with the guitar they got me you know they got me like a starter guitar from media play for all those people that remember media I remember media play 
So they took a lot of my money. Yeah, well, sure, that was the place. <laughs> Absolutely, man. That, that was the spot, and it was pretty cool in there too. Yeah, sure. To, it was. to their credit, yeah. Um, but so yeah, it was. I think from there, it was just kind of on. I, I don't know, you know, because I I did have some traditional upbringing musically in, in that I played trumpet in the high school, you know, in middle school um, bands, and then really like early into high school. But I, I kind of gave up on that because I just. I wasn't inspired by how regimented it was, and I and I just didn't. It didn't totally click for me. I, I liked jazz band, and I liked where I could improvise, which makes sense. You know, yeah. it's kind of funny foreshadowing as a ten year old or whatever, eleven year old, that that's what I wanted to do was when, improvise. And when you look back, you it makes all kinds of sense. It makes doesn't a ton it? of sense. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's funny. I pretty much threw out, not threw out, but didn't apply any of the, my upbringing on trumpet to guitar. I started over and started learning by ear. I didn't learn how to read music for it. I was never a, a very good reader. Um, you know, for, <clears throat> for playing trumpet. So I, uh, I just kind of started, you know, like at the end, I guess your question was about a lot of like the influences and, and stuff like that. And at that age, you know, 11, 12 for me, I, I was a skateboard punk. So <laughs> it really has nothing to do with the jam scene. It was like bands like, uh, like Green Day, you know, and, and Weezer and Blink-182 even like, and then like a lot of ska music, like Catch-22 and, um, voodoo glow skulls and all this crazy stuff that was very fun and a lot of that music too um, and, and this still holds true and has held true for me a lot of that stuff was coming from my older sister it was whatever she was you know she's three years older than me and whatever she was listening to I would kind of either hear her listening to or she'd tell me especially as we got older and we became friends because back then we were you know it was yeah, like sure, sure. rivalry yeah, you know younger yeah. brother yep. older sister I wasn't cool you know yep. And my younger sisters weren't cool either. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's just how it is. If you're the younger one, exactly, you're, you're inherently less cool. But a lot of that was for her influence, and I like to give her credit for that because it's always been super on point. Yep. And um, like, she's the one that got me into Radiohead. She's the one that got me into like even outside of the music world, like Arrested Development, the show, mm-hmm. like game changer for me. All, all kinds of cool stuff. She yeah. was always kind of leading me on a little bit. So that that's what it was in the beginning, which worked out very well as a self-taught guitarist because those songs were simple enough that I could achieve them eventually. You know, like they were all like power chords and just two note, a little like, you know, really easy, like a lot of riffs and stuff like but that. They have those hooks and when you, when you play them, it feels good to play them. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's accessible enough where it captured my excitement and made me want to keep, keep doing it. You know, like I feel like if I would have tried to learn like prog rock right out of the gate, I might've quit because it yeah, was so difficult. Absolutely. It was like a nice entry into the world of music. And I, and I feel like having those roots, um, kind of changed how I looked at music later because I, I think a lot of the, um, pop sensibilities or even punk rock sensibilities stayed with me in terms of like writing things that are purposeful and and fun and and even anthemic you know like like writing in in terms of like making a chorus like an anthem like i think of like one of our songs like kitty chaser that chorus is like a fun sing-along kind of vibe absolutely sure and i and that comes from that 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 influence is being you know being that that age and listening to like offspring albums or whatever you know um so I'd, i'd say that was probably like that's where it all started was kind of a mix of you know, the early punk stuff, but also just, I, and, and on it, I, the other thing I have to say about where I was getting music from at that point was the skateboarding world because yeah. the, all the, all the skate videos, like a huge part of that was the song choice that they had, they would use with their, you know, whatever skateboarder, their, their part would have a unique song to it. And that was the first time I heard like David Bowie. And that was the first time I heard, um, uh, uh, actually queen. I like it really interesting stuff that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the skateboard world beyond like punk music. Cause that stuff I got, I got too, but, um, like a lot of interesting classic rock stuff came from there. A lot of good rock and roll and punk rock. And then eventually hip hop too. Like, mm-hmm. uh, 
So that that was kind of my my roots with music was kind of a lot through the skate culture, and then ultimately in the next few years through my like my dad and actually finally listening to his recommendations. Because when I was like eight or nine, it wasn't cool to like what your parents liked or whatever. What kind of uh, music did your dad play or listen to? Oh, uh, he was into all the right stuff. You know what <laughs> I mean? He 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 used to make a weekend out of it every year to go see the th- you know the th- three nights of the Almond Brothers. There, you know, he'd follow the Dead in the early nineties. Like he, my father. Actually, I remember my dad uh, actually put on Lawn Boy when I was like eight or nine, and I was like, "This is so dumb." And then a few <laughs> years later, you know, I'm in high, I'm in ninth grade, and I'm smoking all the weed and. I, one of my friends like, dude, you got to check this album out. It's going to blow you away. And I was like, cool. Like, I can't wait. And I turned out, I was like, no way. And I was like, oh, sh- you know, shit, my my dad had it right, <laughs> you know, yeah. which, which was always the case. And then um, one of the big things that he turned me on to was like Derek Trucks and, and Steely Dan. And mm-hmm. um, and ultimately, I, I'd say Pink Floyd was the biggest, the biggest one. And that uh, stuck with me the most, too. I think that that played one of the one of the <clears throat> biggest roles in how I approached music and the artistic side of it and trying to write about things that mattered to me or, yeah. or, you know, try to write with purpose and, and have it, you know, be somewhat artistic or, or at least try to be, you know, try to be meaningful, I guess, yep. and to, to, to play and write with passion and purpose. So he was into all kinds of cool stuff. And he also was really into prog, you know, progressive rock too. So like, um, like weird bands like Gentle Giant and, and Yes and, and well, actually not so much Rush, but like Gen- yeah, Genesis and all, all, and King Crimson, et cetera, et cetera. And, Pretty. I mean, honestly, all of it was great. Right. You know, Hendrix, et cetera. I could go on all day. He had excellent music taste. Um, so it just took me a little while to come around to them. And then when I did, I was like, oh, yeah, he's been cool. on to kind of where we went from there so obviously you're forming what you like about music and you're playing and where the heck did evan and dave come into this so they came in pretty early because i i I think i picked up a guitar in late seventh grade and actually started like pursuing it in eighth grade so um we all grew up in you know a suburb of buffalo called north tonawanda and they actually went to a school across town. I, I hadn't known them in middle school. We didn't go to the same schools. And then we got to high school, and I, and I had met them. Um, and specifically, Evan, I met in my ninth grade Spanish class. And he, 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 Evan has always been Evan. That's what I'll say about, about him. He's, he's very unique, and he's super fun, and, and he has all these like odd little things that he always does to screw with me like for fun. That's always been his shtick from day one. And I, I, I met him in Spanish class, and he would stick his neck out as far as he could, like, and just stare at me, like, just to be weird, you know? And I used to call him, uh, what's the, you remember the, the movie, uh, Land Before Time? Absolutely. I, I forget what the main character's name is with the um, long, the long neck. Can you, can, jeez, what is it? Um, anyway, it'll come to yeah, me. Yeah. Later on right. in the interview, we'll yeah. circle back. Yeah. But uh, I, I, w- I would call him that, and he called me Fez because of that 70s show because I was the only kid with, like, 
darker skin in the whole class, you know, like weird, just silly ninth grade high school stuff. And I saw one day that he was wearing a Jimi Hendrix shirt and that's all it took, you know, I was like, and then he's like, well, I play bass. And I was like, wow, that's cool. So we would like, you know, get together and, and, and jam in his basement with his dad and, you know, and just kind of like, you know, screw around with music stuff. But it was fun like to play with, that was like my first experience starting to play with people. And, um, actually at that time he was in a, in a, in a little band with Dave uh, it was, they called themselves Davy Joe Loss and the Freedom, which at that time was Dave. Yeah. Cool. Cause Dave was obsessed with Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, like I was into like Smart Pink kid. Floyd and Rush and he was yeah. into like Stevie Ray Vaughan and like a lot of the guitar slingers like Eric Johnson, et cetera. And so they had this like little blues trio across town and that's, I kind of got to know. And, and so the, the trio, by the way, was Dave, Dave on guitar, Evan on bass and Nick Sonricker on drums, mm-hmm. who would ultimately come to play with us for a few years in Aqueous. Um, and at that time I was in a Brad, uh, or excuse me, in a band with our, our, uh, first drummer, Brad, and we would play Rush songs. So we were like almost these like two little rivalry bands. Like they were playing classic blues rock and we were playing like classic, like more prog rock or, and again, playing, I, I mean, trying to play, Yeah, sure. you know, because it's not like we were super proficient at our instruments, but we were all pretty passionate. And there used to be this joke, like who was better me or Dave. And so we would always try to like one up each other and stuff. And it was this kind of like fun silly healthy competition but we were all friends um right from the get-go and uh, eventually we brought dave over to mine and brad's band or we started like just playing like pink floyd songs and whatever i actually remember specifically the first thing we ever like really sat down and played together was echoes from pink floyd and that song was like us learning how to harmonize vocally and it was like wow that's the coolest sound ever like hearing two voices like not singing a note in unison it was like very cool so this is what grade again? That was probably by the time. So ninth grade was the time that, that we each had our own bands. You know, that like bands, again, parentheses are up for sure. Yeah. Um, and then 10th grade, we started to maybe like jam together a little bit. Yeah. And then by 11th grade, Evan had joined us and it was a, a, a quartet with myself, Evan, Dave and our, and our old drummer, Brad Darrell, who uh, plays with this, uh, a local group now called Imperial Brown. Um and so it was the four of us, and then eventually Nick rejoined the party, and we just totally assembled both bands, and then we were Aqueous, and Nick was on percussion for a while. Um, so that by the time we actually called ourselves Aqueous was 11th grade, and I believe our first performance was at our high school's Earth Day, and we played uh, Time by Pink Floyd, which was funny because they asked us to like tie it in to the Earth Day theme, and we just didn't care about that. We just wanted to play like a Pink Floyd song because that's all we knew how to Absolutely. do. And so there's this funny video floating around on YouTube of us like doing an intro for it because they like, like played on the announcements like the day of. Yeah. And it, we say like some really corny line like, oh, because we're playing time from Pink Floyd because time is running out for endangered species or some <laughs> some stupid thing, you know, which is ironic too, because I feel like actually all of us are like care a lot about the environment and Evan like has a degree in environmental sciences. And, but back then in high school, we we're just like, it's come full circle. The vision was to yeah. just play that Pink Floyd song any way we could. So that was a spinning, spinning that. Nice. So just to recap, I mean, um, we're, we're starting here at the beginning. So, I mean, some people might be new to Aqueous. So when you first started in 11th grade, you were a five piece, right? Uh, four piece in 11th grade, and then oh, okay. by the t- I'd say about the time we graduated a year and a half later, then Nick had come into the fold as okay. a percussionist. Yeah.
So most importantly, we need to we need to get a funny story on all the guys here to start. So see if you can give me a funny story about uh, a couple of the guys here. I mean, this is high school. There's got to be stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. So so Evan, I feel like I could I have a lot of good stories about Evan. So I'll just pick one or two. Okay. Um, I, I'd probably say so. I guess a little a little pretext here is that Dave. Um, Dave worked at Blockbuster, which was like right near our high school and that was his job. And ironically, we have a friend, um, for those, you know, new to Aqueous, we have a friend named Carl who's been kind of involved in, in the band with, you know, one way or another in, in, in some capacity. He used to like do lights for us in a very simple capacity many years ago, <clears throat> many years ago. And, uh, he's just a friend, but he got, he worked there too, which is funny because they didn't know each other at all. And Carl quit as soon as Dave worked there, but that was like a funny kind of <laughs> crossing of paths before they became friends. But anyways, Dave, Dave worked at, at Blockbuster and like one of my favorite pastimes was just to fuck with him like every day that I could. Like I'd go, I'd go in there and me and it was me and Nick most of the time and we'd go and like return a potato into the Dropbox, you know, just like, just like, uh, you know, or we'd go up to the counter like when there was a huge line and, and I'd bring an ice cream sandwich up and ask him what the return policy was on the ice cream sandwich. And I'd start asking like really detailed questions about it. And there's like a line of people behind us and he's like, he can't, he, he was, you know, and Dave is so sweet too that he's like. <laughs> and he's probably a killer employer, like really oh, trying yeah. to do an unbelievable he was doing, job. He was doing yeah. a really good job and we were making it so hard for him, which was, that was the joy That's for the us. That's the joke, right. Know, that yeah. was us. And we always like try and, there was this picture of uh, Whoopi Goldberg up on the wall that we really wanted super bad. Like I wanted to put it on our drummer's kick drum and so I would always like go in there and plot stealing it. And he'd be like, get out, like get out. I'm trying to work, like you're going to yeah. get me fired. And so we would always fuck with Dave at Blockbuster. So that's the pretext. So on, on a separate occasion, I went in there with my at the time girlfriend and we were looking, you know, just, you know, kind of just browsing films as people did when Blockbuster was a thing for yeah, you yeah. youngins out there. And uh, I ran into an old friend, uh, you know, from high school. This is probably a year after we're out of high school. And I, you know, we were just kind of catching up and I was like, he said that he was here with somebody and just didn't, you know, kind of breeze past that detail. And then. All of a sudden, you know, we we check out. Dave wasn't even working. We just like went and, and got a movie. And then I'm, <laughs> I go to, I we get in the car. Me and my girlfriend get in the car, and I start driving away. And then out of nowhere, this girl that I'm with at the time just screams like the most blood curling, you know, terrifying scream I've ever heard in my entire life. And I thought I'd like run over a kid, or I thought like something horrible happened. And I turn around, and Evan is in my back seat, and he had burst through the trunk and pushed pushed the seat down of my 97 Saturn SL2 and and like had just popped out of nowhere and I guess I had left my car unlocked and he had crawled into the trunk and just waited there and he was there with the kid that I ran into and like it was just this whole freak setup and he just kept saying over and over he's like oh I don't know where I am I was sleeping on my couch and just like and I was like so jarred from the scream that my at the time girlfriend did that I was like get out of my car like it wasn't even it was just like super over, over the top and and I I think that's been my dynamic with Evans shit like that since yeah. day one because I remember like another one that I, I like to talk about is like he he always tries to make me laugh when it's super super like inappropriate to laugh so we were taking a I was taking like the important exam in high school it was like our DBQ it was like a database based yeah. question and he uh I, I honest to God, I don't know if he was even taking the exam, but he was in the room, like maybe 10 rows down and just staring at me in a room full of like 200 people completely silent, supposed to be doing this exam. And I don't know what it is. I just think he just, he just makes me laugh and I, I, 
can't the faces he makes and the expressions he has he's very animated and he can like really fuck with you so he um he basically was just like like staring at me from a distance until it got to the point where they told me that if i laughed one more time they were going to kick me out so uh that was that was just kind of classic classic evan screwing with me but nothing on dave Dave, you know, I feel like if anything, it's just Dave's like us screwing with Dave, which yeah. is that's my dynamic with Dave. You know, Evan's screwing with me. I'm screwing with Dave. Everybody's and Dave just it. takes it. Yeah. Well, he's such a good sport. Yeah. He's a sweetheart. He, he's exactly what you think he is. You know, he's very he's very kind, very sweet. The one thing I will give him credit for, though, is we were we were screwing with him. We had gone sledding. And again, these are all years and years and years ago. We'd gone sledding. And Dave, we were like arguing about something or like joking around. And I went to push Dave, you know. And he just totally stonewalled me and like, I like, he like leveled me. I was like, I just fell like straight to the ground and he's like, bitch, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and that was like a moment where I, I, I was, I like, was like, oh man, Dave's got a dark side. You know, Dave's str- like stronger than he, than he, than you might think. So I, Dave stonewalled Jackson over there. That's what, that's what he was doing. Oh, also, I guess well, there is one thing on Dave for people that want to research on the internet. If you go on YouTube and type in the, ha- uh, you know, it's like an internet handle called big strong man right and then type in you know dave loss or nick sonricker that's our old drummer there's a, like a series of like 15 or 20 amazingly produced like mock videos that he was in when he was a kid and it is like grade a material it still stands up it's amazing that's awesome. check that out i i think that's on everybody's list now <laughs> so all right so we got a little bit of uh back in the day here um but things are different now so obviously we we got a good kind of synopsis what everybody's like but the biggest change here has been the addition of Rob, and he's been about a year now. Yeah, a little, little over a year. Yeah, he came into the fold around <clears throat> March of 2016. So uh, let's talk about Rob because I think um, it's changed. You know, I've I followed you guys through a couple of drummers now, and you know now that Rob's here, it's a completely different sound. So let's talk about um, you know Rob specifically and what he's brought to the band and. You know, maybe as you can talk a little bit about how Rob is as a person and how he fit your group dynamic, because obviously you guys are close. And then uh, maybe talk about what he's done musically for you guys. Yeah, I feel um, just a, kind of an ex- extreme gratitude for Rob because um, it's really difficult to find somebody that meets all of the requirements of what it takes to be in a band because it's not it's not just chops, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of guys out there that can play, but there's a lot of aspects to it, you know, that are a little bit harder in terms of like, uh, you know, the personal sacrifices you make with your time and your choices and, and the level of commitment is, is very deep that it, you know, that it 
takes to, to, you know, kind of do what we're trying to do. And um, sometimes it can be a lot of work with, with little return. And sometimes it can be a lot of work with incredible return. And it's about, it was about finding someone that could handle th- that challenge and, and, and traverse those ups and downs, you know, with us and also be someone that can hang out with a group of friends that's been established for as long as we have and agree on things musically. Like it's, it's pretty complex. It's a complex relationship because, um, you know, there's music is emotional and when you're, when you're creating, it can be a very personal experience and it can be sometimes uncomfortable and, and, and especially being in an improv based band, you have to really trust and be confident in your bandmates when you start exploring, you know, when you're in front of a thousand people and just letting go completely of, of structure and of, of the path and just trying to create something on the fly. You need to have pretty much the way I see it. The best results come from a, a deep relationship and, and a deep respect I mean, and love for your bandmates. It's you a know? conversation on stage and it, it impacts all those times you hung out and had those laughs. That yeah. all comes out on stage. I, I completely agree. And, and so it's kind of an anomaly in my mind that Rob fit the way he did and that's why I say I feel gratitude is because I recognize how rare it is that we ha- could have found somebody that fits all of those aspects so well and I and I mean that Rob is Rob is the same type of person that we are in terms of his approach to how he talks to people how he communicates he's very kind he's well spoken he's soft spoken he's fun he's takes his music seriously but doesn't take himself seriously which is kind of the MO you know with our band is you know, and something I, I would say that we actually learned from Fish. I feel like once I saw Fish, I said, "Okay, you can take your musicianship seriously, but not take yourself seriously. Like you can have fun right. with it." Exactly. And, and you know, but um, Rob, Rob brought all of those elements into the fold, and it was so strange, man. We we held auditions, you know, like open auditions through the internet. Um, we had put out a, an article from Live for Live Music, um, just so we could have the most options, you know, to pick from because we recognized how how big of a challenge this was and how rare that person might be to fit all those things and make it work. And we figured we, we should give ourselves the best chance that we have of doing it because, and in, in my mind too, it's worth saying that I think that drums dictates so much of how a band feels and sounds. And, and I feel like if I wasn't a guitar player, I would have been a drummer. And, and I'm always very focused with most bands that I see on the drums. I love drums. And I, I, I don't think a lot of people even realize how critical the difference in someone's playing can be to the sound of the band. Like me, myself, Evan and Dave can sound however we sound, but, and it's, there's kind of an ex- a great example of that is listening through the different eras of when, you know, with the different drummers and stuff, it's completely different vibes between them. And so it, it was frightening to be honest, like chal- that was a huge challenge for us is to find someone that we thought fit our vision for it and that we liked their personality and musicianship enough to trust to you know like to to go there with us and and to incorporate their voice too because it was important for me to not bring someone in that was going to ever feel like a hired gun i wanted to find someone that i respected their mind and their vision for music and that could have a say and a voice so they didn't like it needs to be like we we really are very democratic in our writing and for the four of us like it's got to be i didn't want it to be us and him you know what i mean it just needs to be us and rob man for every single aspect he just kind of came in and it was it was so odd. I guess where I was going with that was that he he came in auditioned. He was one, the literally the last audition to come in. He was the last person that submitted. And by that point, we really weren't super sold on anyone. sold on anyone. Yeah. yeah, we were unsure and nothing felt totally right. But we were trying to be optimistic too, <clears throat> which is tough to be like optimistic but realistic too because we you know it's our band was at stake and that's you know that's our lives and everything. So 
Um, but Rob, literally within f- 10 minutes of his, his audition, everybody was smiling and everybody was like, what the heck is going on? You know, because most times an audition is pretty tense because the person is nervous. We and, and it's not that fun to do either for us, like wanting to focus on writing and to move forward. Like it's just, a you know, and, and it's it's not gratifying musically to do an audition. Like after we'd already done 20 or 30 of them, you know, we're like, OK, like this is getting tired. Like but Rob had this totally different energy. His chops were through the roof. Like he's like, holy shit, this guy can play. He hits with authority, he's very passionate. He's dynamic. He knew all the tunes like he had done his homework. And so we played through like, I think, nine of the aqueous compositions. And he I think I screwed up more than he did. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty impressive. He would put the work in it. And, and that 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 was a big part of it, too, is finding someone that would match the work ethic. You know, when we do stuff, we do it for real, you know, or at least we try to, you know, put everything we have into it and make sure that we come, you know, as correct as we can on, on any uh, anything that we come out with or anything that we cover or whatever. And we needed to find someone that had that work ethic and. It was just weird. All of a sudden we were finding that we knew all the same songs and were influenced by all the same bands. And it was like super weird, like weird stuff too. Like early, some of that early 90s stuff we discussed earlier, like he had almost like a, it was almost like he has having a upbringing that was running in parallel with ours. And we just kind of met and it almost felt a bit like fate um, for what that's worth. But I think it's worth a lot. Yeah, I I, I agree. And, And personally, I do put a lot of stock in that. And I feel like just again i got to express one more time how grateful we are that that happened that, so you know, talk, talk about his style a little bit because you know obviously as you, you know the drummer's going to drive how the band goes i completely agree with you and most jam bands will tell you that you know the most important member is their drummer i know that trey always talks about john fishman he says if you want to go see fish listen to john fishman yeah can you imagine how different they'd sound with someone else exactly. they wouldn't they wouldn't be fish that's like the 100%. thing um and so i guess on that note um rob I feel like Rob was able to preserve and respect everything about what we had built up into that point and then elaborated on such a way like he was able to diversify a lot of what we're able to do with the improv stuff because he had some background besides sharing all the commonalities and all the bands that we liked. He had things, you know, influences that were even more diverse, like like um, some dance based music and like Aphex Twin, like interesting drum and bass sounds that we had never really got to experiment with that I was interested in because sure, sure. Um, if it's mostly just coming from like a rock background or, a, you know, jam or whatever, I think that it's easy to fall into patterns of improv that, you know, just, we know work for our style, but it was, it was amazing to have somebody come in that had an influence that we did not share that we liked, you know, like it was, it was inspiring and it, it, I think it kind of lit a fire and, and, opened up some doors in terms of where we could go creatively with the improv. Um, and, and it's just been really interesting to, to, to be able to, you know, over the course of, you know, just over a year to have it become so tight, you know, he, he, he gelled so quickly that we had to waste very little time on the catalog before we were already working on new music with him. And we were already in the studio with him. And I mean, he recorded, um, our best in show EP with us, like being three and a half months into the band, that's absurd. And like the fact that we would even feel confident enough to go into the studio with somebody and lay down something that's going to be heard forever, you know, like that, that was kind of a testament to his abilities and how much we approved of what he was doing. Um, and, and now moving forward, like in the writing process, we've written a ton of stuff, which I'm excited about because a lot of it's not out yet. Um, but uh, for example, a song like um, Second Sight, which is one of the newer ones. Big fan, um, big th- fan. Thank you. Um, that song was able to take shape in a way that 
was pretty unique for us feel wise. He he brought more of a four on the floor kind of dancey thing to it, but it still has the elements of prog. Like it's kind of this weird amorphous thing between his some of those aspects of his background and then just our whole thing. And and I just I it's it's we're we're loving what he's doing. It's 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 driving forward still, but it's very in the pocket and it's very groove based and him and Evan are like the super tight unit and they're like locked in and listening to each other and um He's basically pushing, I, I would say, I'd, I'd like to give him specific credit for pushing us forward musically and re-inspiring all of us after we had gone through a few years of some turmoil, you know, in terms of going through the, the drummer switch and, you know, some personal things. Um, I, I just feel like we're at this point where everything that we've been working towards and also working through has become unified um, and we're able to finally move forward on our vision for what we had, what we've planned and a lot of the music that we've written and it's really gratifying and it's it's exciting and, and Rob has so much to do with that. I mean, it's it was make or break, really. That's that's what I'll say about that. I feel like our band was on the cusp of we either move forward or we don't. You know, there's only so much you can endure in terms of a lineup change because it becomes unfun to do that over and over. You know, we had gone through a few drummers and it just became like, man, maybe like this is a sign that we're not supposed to, you know, like maybe like should I trust the universe on this or should I push through it you know is there a lesson here what am i supposed to make of all this and now being on the other side of it and and you know and i i think the other thing is too is this past year we've seen more success you know we've we're seeing certain elements start to really come together and i think rob was kind of a catalyst because as soon as he was there a lot of this stuff started it all made sense you know all of it made sense and started to feel right and feel right internally and i feel like the vibe that we have between the four of us and our front of house engineer and light designer Ryan and our you know management team and, and everyone that works for us and stuff is so good right now and so positive and everyone is so motivated and we're writing stuff that we're all like getting really excited about and are proud about and it's like a, a very it's definitely another like the newest chapter but it, it's I think that Rob <clears throat> kind of had a lot to do with that for sure I couldn't agree more um I think uh you know I've known you for you know, five, six years now, Mike, and when I talk to you and see you now, I can just see it on your face, like the, you know, how excited you are. And I think, you know, just listening to as much as I've listened to you guys over the years, I think the exploration element is just launching off stage now. And you and it only it only happens when everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're taking risks, like you said, and, you know, now you're, you're throwing 20-minute jams down like it's nothing. And uh, it's... It, you know, from a fan's perspective and where we are, you know, we're, we couldn't be more excited. So, which is good to hear, you know, we, we're always nervous about that, you know, like it's a big deal to change, change members. And we were always afraid of, you know, losing, losing, you know, people's interest or whatever, but that's, that's good to hear. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Let's um one of the things that um you and I talked about recently, um, kinda off the air here was um you kinda changed your approach in writing set lists. So I, I always think that that's a fun thing, you know, we're always trying to figure out what they're gonna play and you know, being a jam band you mix it up all the time. So kinda talk us through, you know, how you come up with a set list and you know, what you wanna do for that night. 
Yeah, so I think it kind of changes depending on context, but um, assuming we're discussing like a typical aqueous headlining show, um, there's a couple factors that go in. Um, first, The first thing that I do um, is I will go, thanks to Darren and Nick um, Caranto, Darren Camp and Nick Caranto, um, they've you know archived our website you know to where I can check the set list from the city that we're playing in including all the details down to like what was teased that night or how many times we've played it and all these details. And so first things first, I won't play any of those. We won't play any of those songs that we played in the city the last time, or maybe do like one repeat, but try to have the bulk of the material be stuff that people missed last time. Um, so that's kind of square one. And so we typically, what I'll do is I'll pick maybe like 15 songs out that feel right for that show, you know, based on what we had played last time and, you know, kind of going through our catalog and stuff. And then from there, it's about finding like a really good vibe. Like I I usually start with opener and closer. And sometimes that can be the same song if we want to like jam out of it and kind of make a big old sandwich out of it. But uh, kind of start start there. And then the the concept from from once once I've got, you know, maybe at least the opener of the the set picked out and what vibe we want to kind of come out with. from there, I'll start analyzing tempos of songs and, and the pace and pulse that the song is at um, and make sure that I'm doing a good job contrasting between the songs because if something's like 120 beats per minute, you don't want to do too much of that because it's going to get played out and it's going to get old and uninspiring for us and the crowd. So we'll make sure to like shift gears in a way that's fluid. You know, like I'll try to find, like, we, you know, you talk a lot about segues in the jam scene. Um, and a lot of what we've learned from you know our predecessors and a lot of the you know established jam acts is to find ways to smoothly transition between different feels and tempos and um, so we try to be very careful with not ever offering too much of the same. I think that gets old for everybody. So you know different <clears throat> you know uh, coming down to like even even like whether a song is major or minor, whether a song is you know like I said, whatever tempo it is, or like even if it's one has more of like a rock and roll vibe, then maybe we'll do one that has more of a funk groove to it and trying to think about, you know, the different styles that we touch on and do a good job of of contrasting those, you know, as, as eloquently as we can over the course of an hour and a half to keep it interesting and exciting. And then we'll kind of look, look for opportunities to improvise and, um, you know, how can we connect two songs that either are related somewhat in tempo or unrelated, you know, and that can be even a cooler challenge because um, it is hard to to either speed up or slow down to the exact right tempo of whatever song you're, you're headed towards. And sometimes it's cool because you can plan all this stuff out and write it out and then you get there and all of a sudden, like, you know, we might change it up a, a whole lot from, you know, from what was written just based on what's feeling right. And I think it's good to to be in touch with that and to not stick to what's written um, if you're being pulled in another direction naturally. I think that there's a lot to be said about just giving in to the moment and I think that's what people come to concerts for and I think that's why we play music ultimately. So um, we try to find a good healthy balance between that and you know the thing with being an improv based act at least in the live um, live setting is that certain nights it's going to be natural and it's like incredible like what stuff can happen I, I don't even totally understand it and so I, I really it's kind of kind of incredible I don't necessarily know what it means um, but it's blows me away I, I don't know it, like there's been certain moments that we've had where we're just like what the fuck like how did in, in, a, in the best possible way we're like how did that happen like you know without any 
visual communication with or we're just in these like deep pockets and it's like literally like our brains will just start connecting it's like a type of synergy i suppose um and then of course there's the other nights where it's harder to access that and that's a challenge too and i think those nights we tend to stick more to the set list because it's if it's i think in that same way of respecting the moment if the moment's not calling for that and it's not working then it's silly to try to to force it and i i, I never want it to be contrived and i never want it to to the audience to pick up on any any vibe that it's like you know that we're just doing it to do it i don't think that's a good way to improvise i feel like and on those nights then maybe we'll play more songs and get more comfortable because i think a lot of times that comes from a discomfort on stage and what that can be a lot of the times is you're in your mix or it can be how you're feeling that day or there, there's so many various variables to being a human of course but also to being a performing human <laughs> so like especially a band that travels all over the country in a yeah in maybe a, we slept three hours exactly. last night or maybe we didn't sleep at all or you, you know you finished a show at 5 a.m and you're in, in town three thousand miles away the next day yeah, yeah. which I, you know on that same token can be the best shows sometimes yeah. i don't know what sure. it is i don't know what the thing is but um but, you know, those nights maybe we'll just stick to maybe playing the songs more to their format. And then if we get comfortable over the course of a few songs, then naturally at some point I think we'll start improvising. Um, so, yeah, there's there's kind of a lot that goes goes into the set list. And I'll, I'll usually start writing them at least a few days ahead of time um, just to have time to flesh out ideas better. Because I'll, I'll, like, share it, you know, with the band, like, a few days ahead of time. And then usually someone will have an idea, but, like, oh, this can connect to this or this tempo would work with this. Um, and it's decently collaborative. I, I mean, I usually write the majority of them, at least the bones of them, and then everybody will contribute to be like, oh, I don't want to play that one tonight, or let's play this. Um, and I think ultimately our goal is by this, you know, this a lot of the spring tour that we just did was support slots, um, but almost, I'd say 95% of what we've got for our fall tour is going to be all headlining dates. Um, and I'm very excited to dive very deep into our catalog and to rework a lot of these tunes because once we've every time we've had the opportunity to do that, it's been really cool, and we've yielded some cool results. And to take songs that were written when we were in high school or, or, or just after high school, which was a completely different mindset than where we're at in our musicianship and our personal lives now. And to put them through the lens of what our band is capable of now versus then has been really cool. Um, so I think that that's something that we're aspiring to do is to really diversify the set list, you know, as much as we possibly can. Talk about the covers. So you usually do, I would say one to two covers a night, depending on how long your time slot is. Yeah. How are those cho- chosen? It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty, I don't want to say random, but we are very open to anything, you know, as long as it's something that we like and we're not doing it to please somebody, you know, like, like, of course that's a factor. We do think about how it's going to go over and if it's going to be something that anybody responds to. Um, but ultimately we like to play covers that we enjoy and, and sometimes can be completely unrelated to the, the jam scene, um, which has been inspiring because I, I'm finding that a lot of people that resonates with a lot of people too, because I think people find the jam scene, but typically have had other influences or a whole other world um, in experience with music before they get there. And so sometimes it's so awesome to catch people off guard with some of this weird stuff that we'll do um, and see, you know, and of course, like there's never been a time that we've played a cover that everybody in the room was happy with it, but that's like the chance, you know, that's the risk and that's the fun I think of it for everybody because the people that do love it, especially if it's a bit of a deeper cut, is like that's a great moment for all of us, um, and and I think the other thing with covers too is that they can you know if we're talking about improvisation they can spawn um, a totally new and creative type of improv because I think after a certain amount of time there's like some level of expectation within songs that are improvised and often, and all of a sudden 
there's this brand new piece in front of you and then that can just morph into something really cool and, and typically does. Um, and it depends on the type of cover we do too, because if we're playing like a Pink Floyd song, for example, we're not going to jam on it usually. Um, I mean, I guess that's not always true, but like there's certain songs that we play to a T out of respect for, you know, how purposeful the recording was, or there's songs that we will play the, and make our own version of or, or try to put our own spin on. But we try to be really careful with which tunes we do that with because certain ones I think are just so perfect as you know as they are that it's important to play those notes and I, then other ones I think are a little bit looser and you can express yourself a little bit a little bit more loosely with and I think that's kind of a fun thing I would agree with that um do you have possibly uh, a couple of your favorite covers over the years that you've done yeah um <clears throat> There's been so many. I think there's been over 400 at this point. That sounds about, I, yeah. This is absurd. That's yeah. crazy, crazy to think about. Um, I know when we play, I, I, I know I've been kind of harping on Pink Floyd, but I, I feel like it's times that we've done, like we've done Shine On You Crazy Diamond, the first part um, from Wish You Were Here. And that's a very emotional song. And, and for me, that's a very emotional music. And I, I've gotten like just heavy chills on stage playing that and it's it's it just means a lot to me um so i'd say like something like that is 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 really cool um we've only done it a handful of times but when we do this uh, like mashup with bohemian rhapsody and warren in the window i really like that because it's like uh that i think queen is 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 very underrated and i think that that music is like unbelievable i i've never really heard I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is like when I think about the 80s or late 70s, early 80s, and you think about what types of bands were starting to become popular, um, and then out of nowhere you have this band that's playing basically classical compositions of classical music with perfect like four part you know interlocking vocal harmonies, and that was a time too that before production in studios and like when you were recording an album, it was so much more difficult and you had to be so much more on your game there was so so little to correct a performance that that all that meant was you had to be perfect and when i listen to that stuff i just can't even totally comprehend how someone like freddie mercury like executed that stuff so powerfully and and, and with such precision and um i think those compositions are super unique so when we tr when we do it it's a huge challenge because that music is like not easy to play there's a million different chord you know structures within it um, but it also makes everybody in the audience feel really good. I think that's one of those ones that almost everyone can agree on. And it's a rarity for us, too. We've only done it, I think, three times or something like that. Um, so I'd probably, I guess, just off the top of my head, those are some that stick out. And then I, I also personally like stuff that harkens back to like my childhood or maybe some of my like older rock influences, like if we cover a Weezer song or we've been doing Queens of the Stone Age as of late, like stuff that's just fun and maybe unrelated, like maybe just play a song that's three and a half minutes long and that's it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a nice, if you're talking about building set lists, that's kind of a nice breakup to like 20 minute jams every song. So, Absolutely. I like it all, man. It's all fun. Yeah, no doubt.
let's talk about um, this. Is, I think this is a pretty important question. Let's talk about the difference because you, you are talking about the fall coming up, and that you're going to be doing. Um, you're going to be the headliner. You're going to be having full shows, probably ranging three hours at some point. And you did, you know, so many opening acts. Um, you had that big tour with Twiddle, and um, you know, you've had a lot of those recently. So let's talk about the difference between when you guys are in the opening slot and when you're the headliner, because I think that's an important dynamic. Yeah, um, it's no, I, I I completely agree, and I think uh, it's that that opening slots are challenging um, because first of all, you have an audience in front of you that's not ultimately there to see you, um, so you have to win them over. But you have to say what you're going to say in terms of, you know, what you're trying to express musically in a usually pretty short amount of time, which is difficult, you know, being that a lot of our, you know, a lot of the things that draw people to Aqueous are the improv based stuff and, and how we explore things and, come you know, kind of build stuff. And it's tough to figure out a way to build efficiently like in a small amount of time you know like because sure. my instincts are to let it simmer longer and to say less and 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 let it build very slowly to a, a nice peak but you have to do that a lot faster because another part that you want to do is show different sides of the band and show some of the compositional aspects of how we write um and it's and it's so you, you know i think that there's a lot of things that are considered when we're you know like like when we're when we're doing an opening slot like if we're playing with the disco biscuits for example like we supported them in february we decided to do stuff that was a little more up you know things that were a little more like dancey and a little more four on the floor given that their fan base responds to that so you're considering the audience for sure right a little yeah, yeah. We, we try to take it into consideration but not let it totally Dumb. dictate yeah, sure. because i don't we don't want to give people the wrong idea about who we are either Smart. by you know totally giving into that that idea like cuz when we played with twiddle for a bunch of dates um that went so super well, by the way. Those guys are very gracious and kind, and it was an amazing experience. Um, but their fans were very receptive, and we, I was worried about that only because Twiddle's music is definitely a little bit lighter um, than ours in terms of at least like the chord structures are more major sounding, and sometimes ours are a little darker and minor sounding. And um, they, you know, that was like in the beginning, I was like, maybe we should just like play some of the lighter, you know, lighter songs like Warren in the Window or, 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 um, Dave's song or just stuff that was like a little a little lighter and then eventually we started kind of trickling in some of the other ones like something like Numbers and Facts or Underlier and then they were into that you know and I, I think the thing I learned on that on that tour was that as long as you do it with passion and you do it I, I think you have to own it and, and, I, and I think the reason I say that is when you're in an opening slot I think no matter what there is a feeling of being a little timid just only because you're not totally welcome there i guess like you're welcome like we feel welcome from the band and everything but in terms of the audience audiences like you are a support your support so like sometimes people will assume a lot with that you know and not take us as seriously which can work out because sometimes if we like cr totally crush it then people are like blown away because they weren't they didn't see it coming um but so i, I get i don't know there there is some specific strategy that's been effective for for the opening slots, but I think most of the times, once we're done playing one of those sets, I feel like we had just got there. You know, like as soon as as soon as our hour is up or our forty five minutes is up, I'm like, oh man, like I, now I feel ready. You know, but I, I think uh, it just kind of all comes down to context and who you're playing with and how long you've got. Um, but I would say that for anyone listening that's seen us in a support slot, that they should definitely come to a headlining show because that's where the good stuff really like will come alive. Yeah. I 
I, I'll tell you that, um, you know, I, I was certainly impressed. Um, you know, you did the, the huge, for you guys, uh, opening slots at Town Ballroom, and I thought both were, were incredible, and the crowd was super into it. I mean, obviously, I think a lot of people were there to see you at right. that show, but I, you know, I've listened to your other opening slots, and, you know, you've come out with some huge jams right off the bat, mm-hmm. and some of them have been my favorite that I've ever heard you guys play. Sure. I mean, they're right at the top, and they're, you know, you're coming out with 15, 20 minute jams, <laughs> and some of them are incredible. I, I mean, the, um, the Skyway at Scamp was, you know, we all are, are still talking about that uh, here in the fan base, and, you know, that's right off the bat. I think that's a great look for you guys, and you're catching people right away, so. You know, I'm just going to give you some props on on the way you've been opening shows. Well, I appreciate that, man. And I, I think one aspect that goes into that is we know that in the beginning we have time. You know, like if if you start to improvise, if you only have 12 minutes left, then all you're doing is like thinking about the clock. And that's not going to yield very natural results. I mean, you can, you know, good things can happen for sure. But I think like in the, the very first song, we know we have at least an hour or an hour and 20 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever. So we have been, it's funny that you notice that because that, that's been like a, a kind of a tactic is to just jam right in the beginning and then see where we can fit it in from there and then play it safe. Cause you know, a big part of those opportunities like being a support, you know, support act um, or being on a festival is that you need to be punctual. So like, it's important that, you know, jam jamming can really, you know, you put you in a precarious scenario if you go too long and there's still a whole composed section that you have to do to finish the tune. So yeah, we've been doing it in the beginning, so that's... You can just jam it. We're okay with yeah, just, that. You just, can just, just give up the end, end. composed. Yeah. We've heard that before. <laughs> <All right. So Scamp was huge for you guys. Um, we were talking a little bit uh, before we started the podcast here today, uh, Mike and I off air, you know, just how huge it was and you drew huge crowds. It's a great, great thing for you guys. And you especially, Mike, were super busy. So just talk about your overall experience at, at Scamp and, um, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, the amazing workload you had to put in in order to make that happen. Yeah. Um, so I, I think to me, I guess out of all the festivals that we've that we've played over the years, summer camp's probably my favorite. I, I'd say at least top top two or three because it's very the lineup is so diverse and the grounds are set up so perfectly for it and it's just the vibe there is like through the roof and, and people are always so happy and so jacked up and it's like the energy is palpable. It's amazing. Um, so this year our management <clears throat> had pushed for us to get some really amazing set times um, and to get some really cool opportunities. And it ended up being probably the busiest music weekend I've had in just about as long as I can remember because besides the uh, two, we had two full Aqueous sets and then one like late night kind of pop-up set. Um, but I also had taken on a really unique project in doing a Green Day album, uh, the quintessential 90s rock album, Dookie. Just a classic. Classic, super classic. Um 
and you know it was it was an amazing opportunity because uh, Ryan Stasek and Chris Myers from Humphreys McGee, you know, had agreed to to be in the band with me, and it was just us as a trio, which is like equal parts you know fun and equal parts terrifying only because <clears throat> i hadn't had the opportunity to actually play with them you know aqueous has supported umphreys mcgee before and um that's cool and they're all very kind you know and sweet guys but you know when we were growing up i definitely looked up to that band and and i'd seen a lot of their shows as a teenager and in, in my early 20s and so to walk into like a rehearsal space you know with those two guys at first was intimidating but 10 minutes later i learned that they're very sweet and normal people and they welcomed me with you know, it's very gracious and very comfortable and fun, super, super fun. But um, what that meant was that we had, you know, I had been on, you know, emailing with those two guys for about a month ahead of time, just figuring out what we were going to do, because it's so funny when you talk about the jam scene in Aqueous set, that's one hour is going to be four songs or five songs. When if we, playing all 15 songs on Dookie was 40 minutes. That's it. So we needed to fill more, you know, more space. So we ended up picking 30 songs in total to learn, um, you know, within within less than a month's time. And, um, you know, straight on top of that, I actually had a project also going, you know, that was going to be right after summer camp doing two Weezer albums. So between the 30 songs I learned for Dookie and the 22 songs I learned for Weezer and then the couple of covers that we've done throughout this month, I've ended up learning 57 songs in the month of May. It's unbelievable. Crazy. Um, and, and, and just put into perspective, like... Talk about learning a song, like one individual song. Like, how long does that take you? How hard is it? Um, just um, to put that in perspective you know, for everybody. With the Green Day stuff, musically speaking, like at least from the guitar parts, very simple. Um, and, and a lot of the stuff I knew from my childhood, because that's kind of, you know, coming full circle from what sure, we discussed sure. earlier. I was learning a lot of that stuff. But um, the real challenge for that particular material was the lyrics and memorizing them, because it was important to me, just because I know how I operate on stage, to not depend on a lyric sheet. And I, we had agreed that I was going to sort of play the part of Billy Joe and sing every single song on Dookie. So that's 15 songs worth of lyrics. And there is a lot of lyrics. So um, every single day for like at least two and a half weeks, maybe three weeks, and my girlfriend can attest to this because it was probably terrible, <laughs> but I would wake up every single day and play through all of the material. You know, like in the beginning, it was me like learning this stuff. But once I had like a decent handle on it, I needed to drill it into my head to the point that I could walk into a situation that I was a little nervous about and still execute, you know, because I, I, I knew in my mind, those opportunities, um, you know, you work for them and, and, and they're rare. And I feel like you really ultimately get one chance for it to go one of two ways. So it was important to me to do a good job because of the respect I have, you know, for Humphreys McGee, the respect I have for the opportunity. And plus anytime it's just kind of in my nature to, it's gotta be good I, or I'm not going to have fun. Like if I make a mistake, um, I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna be a- bummed about it for days. So I, I need I-, I was I was putting in like an extracurricular amount of work. You know, pretty much any free time that I had was dedicated to running through those tunes because the Green Day stuff wasn't too hard. But we got into some other stuff that was a little more challenging, especially to work as a trio because you got to fill all this all the sound. You know, and um, we ended up. Chris, Chris was really into doing this one song called Unsung from a band called Helmet, which was like a pretty rockin', like edgy kind of, you know, 90s, 90s rock band. And the challenge there was I actually didn't know that song super well. Like I hadn't heard it that many times. And it's much harder to learn a tune that you 
don't like like with the Green Day stuff. It's like in my head already. Like I know how it goes. I know that like you know I have a I pretty good idea of the structure. But when you take a song that you're just basically hearing for the first time and then try to learn it, it's definitely a slower moving. Like because you have to memorize the song, then memorize how to play the song, and that's kind of an important distinction there. Um, and that song in particular was a bit of a hang up for me for a minute because there was like odd meter in it too. There was like a section that had like two bars of eight and one bar of seven and then it would like come in on this really weird hit and there was all these little things, but it, it was, it came together. You know, I, I spent extra time on that and, and made sure that I, I you know, I was going to play that right. And, um, man, it couldn't have gone better. I, I think, uh, <clears throat> it was probably some of the most fun I've had playing music because, you know, first of all, that music is extremely fun to play. It's simple. It's high energy. It's rock. And there was a mosh pit at summer camp. Like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. like crazy. See all these, you know, hippie kids just raging. You know, and and um, the thing is with with both Stasic and Chris is that they were both so hyped on the rock stuff. They were like their energy was so amazing, and they were happy to be there. And like, if you listen back to the set, which I, you know we've got recorded, we'll put it out at some point, but. Um, Stasic is just like hyping the crowd up over and over and just having a blast, you know. Number camp, do I see a fucking mosh pit going on over there? You guys are crazy. All right, uh, kickball's gonna be hippies versus punk rockers. Ah, fuck you, you're all hippies. And it was like pretty surreal to me, and even surreal now to talk about um, that I that I would look over on the stage and see them up there with me. Like, you know, it's 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 pretty incredible, and I, I feel grateful for that too because um, I, I it's just odd. I don't know. You know, you grow up looking looking up to these people, and I think when you're a kid too, um, you really put people on a pedestal, and, and a stage looks so big when you're a kid, you know, and it's like they're gods, you know, like that's how you think of it. And then it was just really validating, I guess, to get in a room with people that I've always looked up to um, and have them be so welcoming and, and kind and have a nice, fun musical connection with. And we're already talking about doing it again, so that's good. Um, but people were raging, man. Some, and, and so I guess because of that that event and because the aqueous sets were just like slamming, like people, you know, the attendance was was great and, and people's energy was great. People were super excited to be there at our sets. Um, and there's just something about that fest, man. I don't know. I feel like it brings it out of us. Like we, we always respond when we're there. Sure. Um, so yeah. And plus, uh, you know, it's worth mentioning too. We mentioned Ryan a little bit earlier, but I think that the difference with this tour is so far is that we've had Ryan, you know, you know, Ryan Bress for those listening is our front of house engineer. He does, um, he mixes the band. So he's, you know, in charge of how we sound out front, but he's also running lights simultaneously and his level of professionalism and his level of execution um, every single night has allowed a completely different comfort zone that we're not used to. And it's yielding amazing results because every night on stage, we know that we're going to be okay. And we know that it's going to be at least as good as, as Ryan's got it set up for us. And I think that our music has improved so much having him on because of that. Um, there's so much to be said about that. And then also the fact that we know confidently that it sounds good out front. We can see people responding to the different, you know, parts that are coming in and out because it's mixed. Right. And also like having a killer light show is like, a huge part of the game now and and that i think kind of helped stepped us up you know step us up a little bit too because um especially in the jam scene like the visual is that's like a really fun cool aspect to go along with the music and he's really dialed into that as well um and he's basically improvising w- along with us every night on lights and that's 
it's cool, man. I, I just think that the, with everything coming together the way that it is, it's allowing us to play the way that we've always wanted to play, you know. And of course he's great because he's a drummer, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they know what's they know what's going on. He's got the rhythm. Absolutely. The rhythm. So yeah, that's great. So I mean, a big moment happened at summer camp, and I was sitting at home. It's tough for me to get away on weekends, but uh, I popped through my Twitter and everything that you had Vinny sit in. Yes. And you also uh, who else? And Joel. You, and Joel. Yeah. So Joel, you've you've kind of had before, right? Yeah. Well, Joel. Joel. Um, He's a big fan. Yeah. Joel. So we're talking for those unsure. We're talking about Joel Cummins from Umphreys McGee, um, and we're also talking about Vinny Amico from Mo, who both sat in our Thursday night set. Um, Joel has been super cool to us for a long time, like longer than, than most, um, I, you know, we're starting to get some recognition now and starting to get to know some of these bands that we've looked up to and stuff, but Joel was early. I I don't know. You know, I know that some of our fans had pestered him a little bit to check us out and there'd been some, you know, like a lot of it was online exchanges like Twitter, you know, I was, I was part of that. And I will mention Joel has to be one of the coolest people I've ever talked to on Twitter. He's very engaged, yep. and I have nothing but respect for him. And I'll also mention that, I mean, a while back, um, you guys played together in Everyone Orchestra, right? Yes. So, you know, I, that was a, a pretty amazing moment for me as a fan because, um, you know, just on a side note, when I listen to Umphreys, I barely ever hear him. It's yeah. very guitar-driven on the mixes. Sure. And watching Joel play and getting to hear him and his chops with you was incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned to him on Twitter how impressed I was. He engaged me. And then from there, you know, it all kind of, you know, springboarded. Yeah. And I I think for us, um, especially early on, you know, before most other people are really paying too much attention from that world. Yeah. He was just exactly what you said. He was kind and he was engaging, um, which to me still is very inspiring because they're 20, you know, over 20 years deep into their career and still having fun and still practicing and still like improving their craft all the time. And then also figuring out ways to engage with younger bands and give, give us inspiration and give us opportunities. And that's huge, man. That's like, you know, that, and that has gone a long way for us, you know, for that, for someone that hasn't ever heard us, if they know, if they just heard that Joel sat in with us to them, that can mean so much. It's like approval, you know, that it's at least, a, it's at a least, sign of respect. It, yeah. hundred percent. Exactly. Like that. He would give us his time and his abilities and contribute to what we're trying to do. And I give, I give him a lot of credit for, for doing that so early on because, um, you know, we're starting, like I was saying, we're starting to get to know some of these other bands now and, um, and it's incredible and they're all exactly like how I'd hope they'd be, which is, uh, you know, kind of a cool thing, but I give Joel credit for being, being early to the, to the fold with us. But, um, so at Thursday night summer camp, yeah, we had talked with the, I, it started with Vinny. So this idea started with Vinny Amico. So about a month and a half ago, we had this really weird, amazing incident with Mo where we went to their show in Boston because we, we had just played in Boston that night with our friends Dopapod. And we just took an Uber over after the set to like just go say hello and just like watch the show for a minute because it's rare that we see Mo shows these days. And Who's killing it, by the way? We both are in agreement. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Mo's, Mo's crushing it. Well, I love Mo. But um, we, we got there and they were backstage passes. So we said, okay, that's cool. Like We should go there back and you know say hello and thank them. And... Um, you know, next thing we know, like we're just kind of hanging out back there and we're just in their dressing room and just, you know, cause we've, we've met them a few times through some different opportunities. And that band again is another one that gave us an opportunity really early with Mo Down. 
um, bef- like way before anyone like Motown 12 was like basically our first actual festival like where that was like the biggest deal because we used to go there every year and pay the money like and be, just be patrons and then to play it was like oh my god but anyways so we're backstage at Mo and I was I was talking with Chuck and Al which is a cool sentence I get to say <laughs> you know and as, as a, if I could tell my 15 year old self that I think my head would explode but um, we were just talking about gear or just nerding out about pedals or some some silly thing. And Al had this idea to have us come out on stage like and replace them for the encore. And I was like, yeah, like, no, okay, like, yeah, right. And he was like, no, I'm serious. He's like, you're all here. Like, let's let's do it. It'd be really cool. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, sure. Like, I was like, but we didn't, you know, we didn't bring any of our instruments. And he's like, oh, you can just play all of ours. He's like, Mike, I know you play a Strat. You can play Chuck Strat. And, Al, you know, Dave can play my, my SG and... You know, and I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And so like, and it's funny because the whole, the joke that whole time was, you know, we were supposed to be on, we were, we were supposed to be on Modown this year and we had to turn it down because of a contract from another one, which is part of the business. It's not like a big deal, but he was like joking that we should just change our name from Modown and call ourselves Sacagawea, which was him trying to pronounce aqueous backwards, I guess, you know? Um, so we went out and did, and like played, you know, we actually just did an improvised section and then just took it into the end section of random company just so we could kind of go out on a clean note you know and it was so interesting too the one thing i wanted to say to any guitar players that might be listening is that that night i had the opportunity to play every piece of chuck's rig including his guitar and his pedals and his amp and i gotta tell you guys i did not sound like chuck which is cool because um i think a a lot of guitar players i know i'm getting sidetracked here but a lot of guitar players um think that they need to get the exact same gear as their heroes and then they're going to sound like their heroes but it's so much of it is in your hands and how you express yourself and it's that human quality that you really can't emulate and I thought that was so cool like I sounded like myself I didn't sound like Chuck even though I was literally playing Chuck's guitar Chuck's amp Chuck's pedals like and I never really thought I'd have that opportunity and that was kind of an interesting example um, of how very true that is so long story short to kind of wrap that up um, at the end of the night we were all like psyched on it and just hanging with Mo and just you know talking and Vinny just expressed he's like man we should like you know maybe we could jam again at summer camp this year because last year he played war pigs with us at summer camp and i was like yeah like what do you want to do so we started like shooting the shit and we got to talking about steely dan because i i at that point had plans to see them um in the next month and we were just kind of like discussing how important they were and how awesome they were and he's like well let's do kid charlemagne and i was like yeah let's do kid charlemagne like that sounds great and so um you know over the next uh, you know couple of weeks, you know we fleshed it out with Vinny and worked out you know how we were going to do it and stuff, and then we kind of realized that that song requires two guitars and keys, and you know Dave splits his duties you know sixty percent you know guitar and forty percent keys most of the time, um, and we wanted to be able to really do justice to the tune, so we're like maybe maybe Joel would come in you know and, and fill that fill that part in and and he you know again hit him up on Twitter and he was like yeah sure. You know, he's very, he's very, very easy, very simple. Um, but it's nice that they're also down to interact with us and to just jump right into the mix and trust that we're going to do it the right way and that we'll, you know, we'll have done our homework. And um, that's a really gratifying feeling because we've always worked to have a reputation of being hard, you know, hard workers and and to make sure that if we got into a scenario like that, that people would not be worried that we would fuck it up on them or something, you know? Uh, and it went great. They totally oh. slayed and, which is cool because that song's not easy, you oh, know, no. like there's like Steely Dan for what yeah, it's there's worth. There's no easy Steely Dan. No. Songs. And it's funny because a lot of them sound like they might be simple, which is the genius of Steely Dan. You start dissecting these tunes and there's like 65 jazz chords in and one. They're <laughs> they a musician's know? band. Yeah. I mean, big time. Absolutely. So you brought Umphreys and Mo together. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, that was kind of cool too. You I know? mean, 
I mean, the play. I mean, Twitter and everything was going nuts because I had never seen that. I've never seen the two band. Sure. You know, I guess two that's come true. Together. I think that at least not for a while because I think they used to do some stuff back in the day. Like they used to, I know there was a tour at some point with Mo and Umphreys, which is so. From listening to Green Day to bringing Mo and Umphreys together, I mean, come on, man, it's pretty crazy. Pretty wild. Man. Pretty wild. Um, I think we're doing good. I mean, we've talked, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, a lot of great stuff, Mike. You're killing it. Um, let's maybe kind of talk about what we, we're, we're going to be seeing from you guys going forward. It's an exciting time. I know that you're completely pumped and, you know, things have been great. And I think we both think that kind of things have turned and uh, it, there's a lot of momentum going right now. So let's talk about what's going forward. Yeah. So we've got quite a bit planned for the next you know, the next year, like pretty much our year is, is pretty laid out for us at the moment. Um, and man, it's, uh, it's awesome. So we've had a lot of good opportunities already this year and we're looking really forward to some of the stuff we've got coming up. We've got some more dates with Umphreys McGee, um, which is always such an awesome experience because you learn a lot too, just being around that crew. That crew is the most efficient crew I've ever seen. Like everything is so dialed and so like streamlined and all of like, the band and and Ryan and our whole crew like learns something new. I think every time we we do a date with them, so that's pretty cool. But uh, even cooler than that is after the, I know after the Central Park show, we're doing a headlining show that that evening. It's like an after party, and we've got Jake and Joel coming. You know, Jake Sinninger and uh, Joel Cummins from Humphreys coming to play with us, which is awesome because I've never got to play with Jake, and he's he's pretty good, pretty pretty pretty, pretty, pretty good. good. But, you know, he's like a f- animal, like a freak, like a robot. You know, I don't he, – he's probably the most proficient player in our scene in terms of having mastered every style. Like, you know, he's just an un- unbelievable player. Um, so I'm excited about that, to say the least. That's going to be cool. And it's going to be cool to see what we come up with for that too because that can mean so many things. Like them coming in – like we could improvise. We can do – I mean, there's a lot that we can do. So. How long's your time slot for that? Do you know? I think like two hours. Okay. Plenty, plenty of time. Sure. Um, so we've got that coming up and there's a ton of, you know, a lot of really great music festivals we're looking forward to. We always have a blast playing at Peach Music Festival and they were kind enough to give us two sets this year, which is pretty exciting. I think we're one of three bands on that lineup that got that honor. So I don't, you know, really grateful for that. Um, I know we're playing like a Resonance in Ohio in the fall. And, you know, it's funny with all these different music fests, there's these, you know, sort of different sizes. You know, there's something like Summer Camp, 30,000 people, like, run the jewels and primus are there like crazy shit and then there's the other ones that are a little bit smaller where it's like our you know friends and contemporaries like people like dopapod or papadozio and those can be 
just if, as fun, if not more fun sometimes because it's like ultimate hang. You know, everybody is like, it's very like, there's a lot of camaraderie and a lot of sit-ins that happen and it's... <clears throat> it's re- and they're incredibly talented themselves. Oh, yeah. I honestly feel like one of our Aqueous's biggest influences in the past five years has been Dopapod. I, I, I'm a huge fan of that band and specifically, um, you know, for, for guitar playing Rob Compa, for what it's worth, has really altered my path, um, whether he will accept that or not because he's painfully humble that that boy but he uh he's one of my best friends and and i i think uh getting the chance to just sit down with him in a room and play guitar over the years has done wonders for my playing and he's very inspiring to me he plays with a lot of feel but he's also very informed musically um and so i think uh that's been that's been kind of huge for me but yeah those those fests were I, I, I love that the dynamic is so different for all of them, and it makes it really interesting and fun to keep playing them throughout the summer. And then pretty much we're going to dive into a huge fall tour, you know, where we're pretty much, you know, everywhere. We've got a lot of big things planned. It's not out yet, but keep an eye out for that, listeners, and definitely help us, you know, promote the shows. And um, I will say, you know, for anyone listening, don't ever underestimate how powerful your impact is. Um, I think a lot of our success recently has just come from a grassroots movement of people talking about us to their friends and talking about us online and getting involved with street teaming. And man, that's everything. It really is. I mean, obviously we're living in a digital world and, and, and everything is on the internet now, but it's, you can, you can really still never beat people just having a conversation about it. And even if it happens online, um, that's the thing. And that's been a huge point of growth for us is just word of mouth. So keep doing that. Um, and we'll keep doing all these cool big things, but, um, yeah, we've got, got all that coming up. And I know one thing I'm very excited about is jam cruise. Um, that's a huge opportunity for us. I never thought I'd get paid to play music on a fucking cruise ship. So with amazing other, bands. with amazing other bands. Yeah. And I've heard a lot about how collaborations go down there and like some of the random jams and stuff. And I'm hoping to maybe get involved with some of that. And, um, yeah, I mean, the future looks bright. We're, sure. we're really psyched. And I know um, beyond dates, um, we also have uh, a lot of plans musically. We're writing so much stuff right now. And we're working towards a studio album that has a decent amount of material that no one's ever heard, which has been something we've always wanted to do. You know, we've typically, we get so excited about new stuff that we just add it into the repertoire right away because it's fresh and it's fun and it's exciting. But I've always wanted to put out a studio album and someone hears an Aqueous song for the very first time that way. And I and so we're we're experimenting with that a little bit right now. We've got a few tracks recorded that no one's ever heard, and then we're, you know, picking out a couple that we've played a few times to go, you know, kind of rework for the studio. Um and I'm you know, by year's end you'll definitely see another Aqueous studio album, but a full length because it's been a minute. Um we've done EPs and stuff, but um going back to some of the earlier stuff with the drummer um debacle we were set back a little bit in terms of our progress there. So we're making up for lost time now. Um, and I'm excited cause it's going really great and, and we're yielding good results. Um, and also in that meantime, so, you know, about a month ago we put out element part one, which was just a kind of culmination of, uh, the greatest hits of the spring tour, if you will. And mixed by our main man, Ryan Bress. And <clears throat> we have a part two on the horizon that it's going to be here pretty soon. Um, and then I think from there we're just going to keep those going because why not? You know, just keep putting out like I think that's going to be a series. We we love them, and I've gotten a lot of good feedback from some other people, and you know they're great. Thanks, man. Yeah, because the the vision with that was, um, you know, being on we're on Nugs.net now, which is a great opportunity for us, and it's um, done. You know, it's been has such a positive impact for us recently in so many facets, and down to and um, even just us getting the opportunity to listen back to what we're playing, and and you know 
notice patterns and notice things that we do want to do more of or not you know do less of but we also realized that not all of our fans subscribe to that service or can even afford that service so it was our goal to make uh, an album more accessible for people that couldn't you know that weren't dialed into that exclusively. I think you can get the first one on Spotify, right? Yes, yes, yes it's on Spotify. We have it on our Bandcamp page. Um, it's on iTunes, like all the traditional formats of ownership, mm-hmm. on, you know, for digital music. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're going to keep those going, um, just because why not? Yeah. Well, I'll touch on something real quick that um, you just mentioned, and we, we talked about with Joel about being approachable, and you know how you think that you know a bunch of fans are helping things along. I could tell you guys that, you know, a long time ago, I just walked up to Mike, Dave, Evan, and Nick at the time and just said hello. And they were as nice to me as I could have ever imagined. And from there, our friendship grew. And here we are today. So if uh, if you haven't met the guys and you're ever around and I, I promise you, you can go up and say hi. They're always gracious. They're always very nice about it. And um, I've had many people tell me, um, I remember a, a buddy of mine in Cincinnati saw you guys and he bought you shots afterward and he's like, they were the nicest guys on the face of the earth. And I think we all have our story meeting you uh, that way. So, you know, for those of you uh, listening that maybe saw them at a festival and you haven't had a chance, if you do see them, they're always happy to listen to you and talk to you and shake your hand. And, you know, they're incredible guys. So, you know, they are very approachable, just, uh, you know, like they, they've seen with some of the other guys in the jam scene. So I'll just plug that for them real quick. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we encourage that. I, I think um, just when we were growing up, we, you know, and kind of what we've been discussing with, you know, meeting some of these heroes of ours and them being that kind, it's like, it's not even like you got to pay it for it. I just feel very inspired. I love talking to people and meeting people. And for us, I think we've always just been blown away that anybody cares I, I know that sounds silly but we never really sought out to like we didn't have like an intention we were just playing music because we loved it and because we were friends and then all of a sudden when people started like coming to the shows and it's like it was like wild to us and I think that a part of us will always remain rooted in that like just being really grateful that people are into it and and, and I, I think that the most inspiring thing as a musician is to have other people communicate to you what it's meant to them and that if it's impacted them on any level i think that's so beautiful like that's like the reason that we got into it really i mean obviously we we like to play and we we're musicians and stuff but um beyond that i think more and more importantly it's about making connections with people and and about making a positive impact for people um so yeah come come say hello we 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 appreciate everybody and and you know, of course, like there'll be situations where we have less time or more time, but we'll always at least say hi and be, and be nice to you. Don't, we're not going to bite you. Yeah. So, um, I'll just do a quick plug. Um, on Monday nights, uh, myself and, uh, Darren Kemp, were hosting uh listening parties. So if you want to check out the band, talk to a couple fans here, uh, we've been replaying shows every Monday night about eight o'clock. Uh, we may change that up on a week to week, uh, basis based on, you know, who's around, but uh, I would encourage you to like uh, the Acquaintances page on Facebook. So just uh, find that. That's usually where we post a lot of information. And it's a really fun thing. So we're, I was talking to Mike. He's going to check one of these out, and it'll be a great way for him to talk to some of you guys out there. And um, you can hit myself up, or Darren uh, is a very nice resource, uh, Uncle Fisher there. He's <laughs> been around for a long time. Um, he's pretty nice for the most part. So. Um, so that's just a quick plug, and uh, Mike, um, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I think it went, uh, it was a blast, and we're going to be getting everybody from Aquia, so get everybody's different perspective on uh, what's going on here. So unless there's anything else uh, you wanted to add? No, I think we, we covered a good amount of ground. Yeah, a lot. Come, come to a show, tell your friends. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll look forward to doing these uh, in the future. Thanks. Thanks.